Ukraine is NATO considering its options and what will that mean for British troops in future? We might want to consider how we exercise more actively with our Polish friends on their training areas, perhaps with our with our friends in the Czech Republic. Britain sends military experts to Nigeria to help find 200 missing schoolgirls and we take an early look at the HMS Queen Elizabeth. Is Russian President Putin feeling the heat over Ukraine? He says he supports Kiev's general election plan. He says he's pulling out troops from the Ukraine border. BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee is here. Hello, Christopher. What's going on then? Well, the first thing is that the Americans put a lot of pressure and demanded, publicly demanded, that Putin backs off from the border and also pulls off his, what one person in the State Department described as his goons, but the pro-Russian people in East Ukraine. He appears to be saying now, yeah, OK, I'm going to be doing that. Also, I, I support the principle of the Ukrainian elections, uh, something which he, up until now he hasn't done. Two points. One, will um, the pro-Russia militia actually take any notice of him? He's told them to, to pull off and stop, stop breaking up, basically, Eastern Ukraine at the moment, hasn't he? But they've invested a lot of their credibility, of their efforts, that people have been killed, etc. And if they pull back, then they have nothing. The second thing is there's no sign at the moment, certainly not this afternoon, that his, his withdrawal from the border has taken place. However... It is a huge operation to withdraw troops like that. It just doesn't happen in 48 hours. Of course, this doesn't mean that NATO's commanders have forgotten about it all. In fact, the alliance's top military commander in Europe says the tensions between Ukraine and Russia mean it must consider permanently basing forces in Eastern Europe. General Philip Breedlove says NATO must consider its long-term readiness and responsiveness in the region at this September's summit in Wales. During a series of meetings first with the Chiefs of Defence then the ministers of defense, then the ministers of foreign affairs leading up to the summit, we will look at some of those tougher questions about are we positioned correctly in Europe? The chief of the general staff, General Sir Peter Wall, told BFBS he agrees. Well, I think it, 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 it does. And to an extent, it has plenty of touch points with Eastern Europe up to the sort of NATO boundary, you know, Baltic states, Poland and everything else. And um, we have some exercises going on at the moment. Um, there's a, it's a moot point whether one is better off uh, being based there or actually having a vibrant um, exercise regime that could um, then be the basis of a more permanent presence if things got, got sort of tense enough to justify it. But uh, I think that, you know, NATO's attention has been very firmly in Afghanistan for the last 10 years. We all know that the combat role in Afghanistan is going to come to a close at the end of this year. We are well placed to be able to drive our energies into a different place. And because of instability in Eastern Europe, um, going back to the heart of NATO and relearning some of those old skills in, um, in, in that ground would be very good. But he says there would be no need for the British Army, Army to stay in Germany. I, I don't think so, because in a sense it's not quite in the right place. Um, it was fine when... NATO's eastern border was the inner German border, which now, of course, runs straight through the middle of Germany. But uh, NATO's expanded eastwards, 
we're a long way from what might be a front line in the future, heaven forbid. So I think we're better off um, continuing with our plans to draw down the British Army in Germany, the end of a fantastic era, but something that we've you know, come to terms with, building new camps here in UK for the armoured brigades in, around Salisbury Plain that are coming back. And um, that's all in train, uh, destined to be done by 2018, 2019. Um, but I do think we might want to consider how we exercise more actively with our Polish friends on their training areas, perhaps with our, uh, again, with our friends in the Czech Republic where our troops in Germany have often exercised in the past. So I think that's the way we'd go about it. Because, frankly, it's very expensive to sustain forces permanently in those sorts of places, and um, it limits our flexibility. That's the Chief of the General Staff, General Sir Peter Wall. Christopher, how likely is it that there will be a new NATO base in Eastern Europe? And if there were one, where would it be? Um, I think we've got to be where NATO base. It could be the, the command base somewhere that you can command any operation. For example, the Americans down in, they're in Florida to command what goes on in the Middle East. So where you command is very important. I'd, I'd pick Croatia, which is the one place they're not talking about at the moment, and it's not a secret. Uh, Breedlove, about four weeks ago, sent down uh, a three-star general to have a look at Croatia. Right. And see whether he could actually sort of spot what the comms were like, what the access was like, what logistics it's were like. It's actively being considered, you think, maybe? I actually believe it is. I mean, people I talked to were saying this, a lieutenant general went down there. You don't send a lieutenant down there on his bike. I mean, he's, he's, <laughs> well, he's probably got a staff of about 40. He comes back and he reports to uh, Sakur himself, uh, to Breedlove himself. I would put some money on, on, on Croatia. All right. Just remind us which British troops are, where they are in the Baltic states. Right, we've got two elements. We've got the air element... And so you've got reconnaissance, and also there's a there's a half squadron of uh, of typhoon uh, down there as well, or in Lithuania. They went to Lithuania. Um, the whole Baltic thing is important because you can a lot of it sort of um, you know so-called Western Europe, if you can still use that term. So you can put vessels in there. And that's very important because, especially mine counter vessels, not big, not big guys and, and with in terms missiles. Of the sea at the moment. Yeah, you you could have you could have MCMVs uh, in 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 the Baltic, but also don't forget the Mediterranean, Eastern Mediterranean, very important. You can put big assets down there and through the Bosphorus. Turkey has command. Turkey says yes, a, a warship can come through the Bosphorus or not. That's the gap between Mediterranean, right, and uh, and the Black Sea. And there are very strict rules about coming through there. Turkey is a member of NATO. Turkey's mm. got an interest in, in all this. I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind betting that we will see some NATO flagship or ships, probably two or three, going up to Bla into the Black Sea, which leads to uh, le leads to the, uh, the the Russians' main main base there, Sevastopol, simply to make a point. Look out, we are here. One of the reasons, back to the top there, one of the reasons that the the Russians are sort of taking a cool look now and they're starting to pull back trying to lower the temperature. Alright, let, let's leave this subject for the moment because Britain is going to send a small team of military experts and Whitehall officials to Nigeria to help with the search for more than 200 kidnapped schoolgirls. The girls were abducted three weeks ago by the Islamist group Boko Haram which is threatening to sell them as slaves. Earlier this week I spoke to security expert Mark Harrison, a former soldier who now specialises in crisis response for the Olive Group.
Well, I think one of the most important things to do is to make sure you've got very good information, intelligence on the uh, ground as to where the girls might be uh, held and how many people might be holding them. So I think one of the first things is to get uh, intelligent assets out there so they can start building up a picture uh, of what is going on uh, from the point of view of who the captors are, where the girls are located. Uh, and then you'll start looking at the best ways, perhaps, of, uh, if you choose to look at a rescue, of, absolute, of uh, implementing that rescue. And how difficult do you think it might be to build up that picture you're talking about? It is a huge um, challenge, bearing mm. in mind the number of uh, girls who have been taken. Uh, I think reports talk about sort of two, between sort of 230, 240. Uh, and I think the other challenge is the fact that it is such a huge area. Um, and the, the Nigerian government don't um, have primacy uh, in that region from the point of view of, of Boko Haram and, and what, what they can do to deny them access. So you know, it, it, is, it is a huge, huge problem. And three weeks have gone by, which is you know, um, going to be very, very hard on the families. And as far as the families, I think, are concerned, you know, that they've, not seen, they've not seen much progress. So it's a very, very difficult situation indeed. How big a threat is Boko Haram to the safety and security of this region of West Africa. They are still fairly re uh, national to, to, to Nigeria, um, but they are a big threat to uh, people operating in the north of the country and specifically up into the northeast uh, area where they basically hold uh, dominance. That was Mark Harrison from the Olive Group. But Christopher, the story much bigger than the 200 or more missing schoolgirls, isn't it? I think it's become bigger in, in the United States and in London and now in Paris. They're saying that this is, in fact, uh, a war against Boko Haram. Mm. This is a much bigger thing than let's do a rescue job uh, because they see that as a much greater threat. Don't forget where, what we've got in Nigeria. You know, it's a big country. OK, everybody knows that's the most populous country in the whole of Africa. It's perhaps the richest country in the whole of Africa, a lot of oil and other assets. 350 ethnic groups. In, 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 in Nigeria, 230, some of the different languages spoken. That's the size of the problem. The bit they're looking for at the moment covers just 60,000 square miles, which mm. is bad enough. And that's why, I mean, uh, that um, um, Mark Harrison was saying the idea is to get in some intelligent assets uh, as, as quickly as possible. They're already there. They've been there for three weeks mm. uh, at the moment. I, I was kind of puzzled by something that David Cameron said in the Commons yesterday, saying it's not just a Nigerian issue, a global issue. And yet, on the other hand, and you have good luck, Johnson, uh, Jonathan, the, the the president of Nigeria, saying this is the beginning of the end of terrorism in Nigeria. And yet, you have David Cameron saying we've got to take on Islamists around our world, where they are, basically say take the fight to them. Is there, is there a, I mean, Boko Haram at the moment, is there a danger that this kind of talk, the way everyone, the international community reacts, could actually turn Boko Haram into something else and, and almost encourage it to become more of an, an Al Qaeda affiliate? Well, I tell you, it, it, until, until the kids got. Uh, sort of taken. And people like Cameron got up and made these sort of statements, we know we're going to take the fight to them without any indication of what you fight with, of exactly how you do it, without actually pulling together everybody else like the Americans, the French, although they do seem to be on board. But if you were going to have an international operation he's talking about, that A, there are no assets, B, there's no United Nations mandate, and you can't do a thing like this without United Nations mandate. So therefore, it's individual stuff taking these, uh, taking these people out. But hardly anybody was taking notice of it before the girls were, uh, were taken. That is the sadness of the real thing, not at all reflected in what's been said in the House of Commons. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, a sneak peek at the Royal Navy's new aircraft carrier and a look at the plans for the new Type 26.
Yes, sit rep. Japan will start a fortnight of military exercises this weekend aimed at protecting what they call the Senkaku Islands. The islands are the subject of a territorial dispute between Japan and China. We're joined now from Beijing by Sky News' Asia correspondent Mark Stone. Hello, Mark. What can you tell us about Japan's military exercises? Well, I can tell you, first of all, that uh, BFPS's trips up at the first hurdle as far as um, uh, China is concerned, because this is all about... Uh, the Senkaku Islands, as you, as you referred to them, but in China, they're known as the Diyu Islands, and it really is a very, very sensitive issue. Uh, these islands, both countries claim them, uh, both countries claim them as their own, and, and the exercises that Japan will start in two days' time are, are overtly, at least, nothing to do with the islands, so Japan is saying, but it's quite clear that they are, because it's the first time that Japan has used its military or its national defense force, as it's known, uh, in Japan to uh, retake an island, to practice the retaking of an island, because of course they are concerned that although they control the Senkaku Islands, as they call them, uh, there is a concern they believe that, ch- that China uh, might try and take control of them. Well, Japan's security is largely dependent on the US. Is America involved, and to what extent? Uh, they are involved very much, though, so. not not militarily at this, say, at this stage, although clearly America has a huge uh, presence in Japan, uh, in Okinawa, uh, in the south of Japan. Uh, and America has a treaty uh, with Japan which states that if Japan is attacked, uh, they have to uh, back up uh, the Japanese forces. So uh, in that in that sense, uh, the stakes are pretty high. And it really is just one of so many uh, areas in, in the South and East China Sea uh, where there is a significant potential flashpoint. Just before we came on air, I was looking at all the different, air, different countries that Japan has territorial disputes with. And the list is long. Japan, Malaysia, Brunei. Vietnam, Philippines, Indonesia, and Taiwan. All of those countries are currently in territorial disputes with the Chinese who are being increasingly pushy, really, with their maritime borders stretching way, way out, well beyond their their coastline. And in terms of the alliance between Japan and the US, how, how is China responding at the moment? Well, China will, will, will say that uh, in terms of the Senkaku or the Diyu Islands, that they are historically theirs. Japan has a claim which goes back to the 19th century, uh, but China's claim goes back uh, way, way further uh, into ancient times. Uh, but it has been a dormant claim up until the past couple of years uh, when the, the, the islands were nationalized by the Chinese. Uh, but if that, by the Japanese, sorry, but if that is uh, perhaps one of the most uh, uh, compelling arguments Chinese have. In other areas, their argument is, is somewhat less compelling. They, they've recently clashed just yesterday with the, with the Vietnamese military uh, down in the South China Sea. The Chinese are trying to drill oil down there, uh, and the Vietnamese say, well, hang on a minute, this, this is our territory, you can't do that. Uh, so that's another flashpoint. It, 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 it's interesting because it's not always in the news, but if, this, if these flashpoints did turn into something, and certainly with the Japan-China issue, uh, the potential for a military accident is huge. No one's suggesting that one country or another is going to uh, suddenly declare war. But if, when you've got so many military assets buzzing around uh, in the air above these islands and on the waters, the potential for an accident is huge. And there is no military hotline, really, between the Japanese and the Chinese at the moment. And I think that's the concern. And the world, perhaps, looking towards Ukraine, looking to Syria, Nigeria, not necessarily focusing on another potential flashpoint in the uh, east of the world. Christopher Lee, um, presumably the Foreign Office keeping a keen eye on all of this. Yeah, and it's a very good example um, of the fact that we, you know, we concentrate on a big story like Ukraine or Nigeria, 
Um, but the departments in not just the Foreign Office, but the Foreign Office, GCHQ, the SIS, and MOD um, uh, intelligence departments are having a regionalised and they're watching all these. How do we get, if necessarily, in, in, in involved in this? Or do we get involved? Mark was there talking about the possibility, let's say, an accident. Something happens. And you don't know what the knock-on effect has got to be. Have you got assets in the area? I mean, for example, if you, if it, you, can, you can have uh, a frigate already in the area. What does it do? Does it get involved anywhere? In some ways, you know, the Senkaku or the Dayahu uh, Islands are, are sort of are, are like, rather like Falklands in as much that there's always going to be a, a dispute, there's always going to be a, an unresolved dispute, if you like, there's always the possibility that one becomes a military dispute, and that is the difficulty, and that's why, it's a reminder again, that the United Kingdom uh, is looking at about 22 operational areas yeah. in, in, in the world today. OK, um, what are the top ten of those 22? Uh, and Mark, where, where would you put the, the South China Sea in that, in that 22, that list of 22? Well, on the face of it, you'd put it pretty low uh, because the, 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 the chances of something happening uh, and that one, one country declaring war on another uh, is low. But as I say, if there was an accident, if something did go wrong, uh, either between Japan uh, and, and China or down uh, looking at the Vietnamese as well, they've got a pretty significant uh, uh, naval force for the Vietnamese. If something went wrong uh, and that then would suddenly escalate things very, very quickly, the potential for the flashpoint to be to be huge in the region uh, is big. And, and when you consider that China is the world's second largest economy, that uh, most of what you've got around you uh, right now is probably made in China, the potential for this escalating and becoming a global problem is huge. So on the, on the, on the face of it, it's probably way down the plan as list of priorities, both uh, at the Foreign Office and at Staff College and wherever else. But uh, the potential for something to go wrong uh, escalates things massively, and I think that's the concern. OK, Christopher, elsewhere... What is in the top ten? Uh, well, you've got, you got four areas of Africa to start with. You know, if it, we we said right at the beginning of the year, if you want a war, go to Africa. And Nigeria is at the top of the top of the heap at the moment. But there are other places as well. I mean, for example, Kenya. We we we've got a sharp eye on Kenya. Um, but then you go to Europe. Well, we've got we've got not only uh, Ukraine, but what spins off from Ukraine. Uh, we also we've had intelligence people there looking at that, get, reporting back to London to the SIS, listening in. To by GCHQ, you you redirect some of your listening effort into an area as it flashes up. Um, then you go into the Middle East itself, and for goodness sake, I mean, you, what's happening, for example, in Syria at the moment is 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 a direct result of 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 the pressures that we didn't anticipate. And there is the fundamental thing: you you get your intelligence wrong, and in twenty two areas, you've got to watch everyone far more distinctly than you did, say, just ten years ago. All right, Christopher, stay with us. Uh, Mark Stone in Beijing. Thank you for your time today. It's something of a momentous year for the future of the Royal Navy. The largest ship in its history, the HMS Queen Elizabeth, launches in less than two months' time. And the government is widely expected to order the first of the next generation of Type 26 frigates. Will Inglis has been given access to the part-finished aircraft carrier and to the designers working on the Type 26. Towering above Resyth Dockyard, HMS Queen Elizabeth is largely complete. Externally, all that's needed is to fit one of the giant aircraft lifts and apply a good coat of paint. And inside, she's taking shape too, with handover work well underway. Paul Rafferty is project manager with the Aircraft Carrier Alliance. She will float out of the dock in the summer. We will then post that ceremony, flood the dock and, and take the ship across to the outfitting berth, where we will continue with the outfitting programme and then 
quite quickly after that, moving into the commissioning programme. That'll culminate in deck trials with the F-35 off the eastern seaboard of the US in late 2018. Already, though, the ship has a sizeable company working with the contractors. Commander Jules Lowe is Commander Marine Engineer. We have 74 technicians engaged in, in trials and commissioning activity alongside our in industry colleagues. It accelerates the way in which we learn about the ship uh, and forms the basis of our training solution. Three times the size of HMS Illustrious, the ship is so large that the workers building her use a smartphone app to find their way around. One day, this vast ship will be escorted to sea by a flotilla including Type 26 frigates. They, however, are still very much on the virtual drawing board. At Scott's Toon, I'm given some 3D goggles and taken for a tour. It's allowing us to see our emerging design. Steve Kirby is part of the team pioneering the virtualization technology for BAE Systems. It's an extraordinary piece of kit, isn't it? And yet, at heart, it's really simple. And all it's doing is taking data which is buried deep in our specialist workstations and it's bringing it to life. And it's already having an impact on the design. BAE's Business Development Director Brian Johnson says the Type 26 will be extremely versatile. We're talking about a ship that can do everything from the high-end ASW needs to support a carrier strike task group right through to the piracy and multi-mission things. And, and all of this combined with, with working conditions and accommodation that's right for the Navy. But that's all a long way off. Before they can build the ships, they'll have to build the shipyard. Much of it has been raised to the ground since the last Type 45 left Scotstoon. And rebuilding to consolidate all of the UK's warship building here will cost £200 million. If the government signs up to enough Type 26s, that work could start as soon as next year, with the first frigate leaving here in the early 2020s. This reporting. Uh, Christopher, um, as far as the HMS Queen Elizabeth going, all going rather well, it would seem. Yeah, I'll tell you something. Listen, it isn't uh, uh, what... Uh, Will was saying at the end, two hundred million pounds for new dockyards, Scotsoon, which has been raised to the ground, etc. Uh, he started off by saying there was the Queen Elizabeth uh, towering above Rosyth. If in September the Scots decided, you know, you know, we've finished with with with, with England mm. to get independence, after two years a ship has to go into refit. There's only one dockyard that can take an aircraft carrier that size in the United oh, well, Kingdom. Oh, I wonder where that is. And that <laughs> happens to be in Rosyth. Secondly, yes. if you start a building programme in Scotsoon, and suddenly they're independent, mm. uh, that's not at all what they planned. But let's let's go back just a bit on, on to the Elizabeth. I think they, they're on course. They've done really well. They've got the aircraft uh, sort of sized up, but not yet there. What's been interesting is the flight deck handlers have been out for the United States Navy and they've been operating in carriers, operating with the F-35 prototypes and they are with it and they're coming out on top of the competition there. So whatever happens when she goes to sea, the ship's company will, as usual, sort of be, be quite good. Stay with us, Christopher. Not biased at all. This time next week, we should know who will be the new chair of the House of Commons Defence Committee. James Arbuthnot has stepped down after a nine-year stint in the job. A ballot for his replacement will be held next Wednesday. The BBC's political correspondent Rob Watson joins us now from Westminster. Hello, Rob. Uh, do okay. we know who the candidates are? We do, but let me begin by setting the scene for you in a way that I, I think is going to be rather surprising. It certainly surprised me. I was talking to a parliamentary source who said it's all getting rather heated, this competition for chairman of the Defence Select Committee. I mean, 
heated. He went, no, 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 not handbags, Rob, just very, very competitive. Wow. Because I had this lovely image of these people being like footballers and, no, vote for me, vote for me. But anyway, getting very heated. Who are the front runners? Well, I've been told by parliamentary sources that you've got Rory Stewart, uh, Rory Stewart, Conservative MP, well, they're all Conservatives, Julian Lewis and Keith Simpson. Now, there are other people who are declared candidates, Bob Stewart, we all know Bob Stewart, Julian Brazer and James Gray, and no doubt others may join the fray. So you say it's very heated. Any idea of who the favourite might be at the moment? Well, I've been told that the two favourites, to narrow it down, are Rory Stewart. He's mm. a MP from the Lake District, nice young chap, very, uh, very well-spoken, well-liked. Uh, former diplomat, of course, made his name by his travels across Afghanistan and Pakistan, and Dr. Julian Lewis, and I guess most people know Julian Lewis. He was a, a shadow uh, defence minister, very, uh, very outspoken on defence issues. Now, the reason why I'm told why they're the front runners is because the Conservative Party, they're all the candidates, Conservatives, they can't agree on uh, who it might be, so the vote will be to fight, to sort of split. So it'll depend on what Labour MPs, uh, will, how they'll vote. Mm. Um, I have been told by a little bird in the the Labour Party that they rather like Rory Stewart because he's a maverick and they rather like Julian Lewis because he voted against his own government against intervention in Syria. Mm, Christopher, um, this person, whoever it should be, what kind of qualities should they have? Well, if you rule out Rory Stewart, who is... Why are you ruling him out? Well, uh, I don't necessarily rule out, but I mean, Rob was saying, you know, he's a bit of a maverick, etc. Um, traditionally, the, the, the chair chairman and chairwoman of a of a select committee, especially one like this, they're steady pairs of hands. They're quite often people who don't expect to have, uh, let's say, ministerial jobs uh, later on. And they bring a lot of experience and they're fine. And they're able to control people like Rory Stewart and hmm. sometimes Julian Lewis. Um, I quite like the idea of Keith Simpson. I remember Keith Simpson from, from Sandhurst. He was brilliant. And he does one thing. He remembers that the the political reason to be there is to mm. be the watchdog for the military, and so the military are far more likely to get somebody so, out uh, uh, to get to get something out of having someone like Keith Simpson. So, so tell us a bit more about Keith Simpson, Rob. Well, he, he's certainly very keen on the job. We, we know that he's an been advisor a, an advisor to, to, to uh, Hague, yeah. he's been an advisor to William Hague. Uh, he's, um, I guess you'd say he was one of the, the older, steadier candidates. And, and in his lobbying for the job, lobbying in the corridors of Westminster and uh, having a, the odd word in the ear of the odd receptive journalist, you know, he's been saying he will be the kind of guy who will uh, hold the Ministry of Defence's uh, feet to the fire. Mm. I suppose if you think about the person they're replacing, James Arbuthnot, he, he was kind of a, a mild-mannered in the way he expressed himself kind of person. Does the Defence Select Committee really need a Margaret Hodge type of character to, to give it more teeth and perhaps, a, I don't know, sort of uh, cause a few more, stir a bit more? Well, that, Kate, is way above my pay grade, isn't it? I mean, that's, <laughs> that's the kind of thing where, as a journalist, you feel like saying, well, absolutely, let's, you know, let's get someone in there. More entertaining, really gonna, I suppose. Yeah, let's get someone in there who's going to stick it to every politician, apart from themselves, of course, mm. and Minister of Defence officials. I, I suspect that it's a bit unli unlikely in the sense that you know, Mar Margaret's targets are all, all those sort of easy things which have gone wrong in some hapless part of the country and the system where we'd all like to give it a good old bloody kick. But I think it's slightly different 
different with defence, isn't it? And that most most MPs of whatever kind of colour or hue, they, they feel kind of deeply loyal to Britain's armed forces. And while they may be infuriated by the Ministry of Defence sometimes, that they're not into giving it too much of a kicking. So, you know, are we going to get someone who who's on the Today programme every morning at 6.30? Well, probably not. Or BFBS stirring it all up. I, I suspect not. All right, time to put your money where your mouth is. Christopher, who's your money on? Um, if I could, if I could organise it, Keith, Keith Simpson, what you need is a bunch of Jack Russells hmm. commanded by a steady pair of hands. I'd say Keith, uh, Keith Simpson. And you, Rob? I have absolutely no idea, Kate. But I, I'm just going to go on what my uh, on what a source in the Labour Party said, which was to look out for Rory and Julian Lewis. Rob Watson, thank you very much. Uh, Christopher, so we've got that to look forward to next week. Um, elsewhere in the world, Afghanistan, need some news on that. Afghanistan, India's going to sell Afghanistan uh, Russian kit, including helicopters. That will really get up the nose of the Pakistanis who mm. fear Afghanistan too, too well organised militarily. Mm. Uh, Leslie Thomas has died. Lady, Leslie Thomas. Leslie Thomas wrote a book called um, uh, Virgin Soldiers, and this was the last great funny literary book of national service. Everybody who hasn't read it should go out now and read uh, Virgin Soldiers by Leslie Thomas, late Leslie Thomas now. Developments in Syria as the presidential elections approach in June. Uh, presidential elections on June the 3rd and now what's happened in Homs which was the capital of the revolution that is virtually fallen in the old town and people are being evacuated. 1400 by uh, by this morning. And your predictions for the Eurovision Song Contest, Christopher? Well, if, if you know, you've got the Ukrainians in, in the finals, you've got the Russians in the, in, in the finals, mm. the Russian twins. I mean, who they all vote for each other but who's going to vote for the Russians this time? Interesting around? times. What's your money on the Ukrainians. You'll be watching, I'm sure. Thanks to all of you for listening this week. We'll be back same time next week. From me, Kate Chabot, bye-bye for now. News. News. Sports. Sports. And music. music. For the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.